Uh, if you have to, your Bibles with you, I'm going to read from Isaiah 61, starting at verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and release from darkness captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Let's pray. Father, sometimes the way seems so dark. Sometimes we feel our lives have been marked by grief and pain, that we don't know how our circumstances can ever change. But in the midst of our weakness, we ask that you go and be strong on our behalf. Lord, rise up within us. Let the Spirit shine out of every broken place we have walked through. Allow your power to be manifested in our weakness so that others will recognize it is you who is on work on our behalf. We ask that you would trade the ashes of our lives for the beauty of your presence. Trade our mourning and grief for the oil of joy and gladness from your spirit. Trade our despair for hope and praise. We choose to give you thanks today and believe that any season of darkness will fade away. Thank you that you are with us in whatever we face and that you are greater than any trial we can have. We know and recognize that you are sovereign. We thank you for the victory that is in us because of Christ. And we are confident that you have only our best in store for our future. We thank you that you are at work right now, trading our ashes for beauty and greater beauty. We praise you, for you make all things new. In Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks ago, Pastor Miles quoted Oswald Smith, the founder of People's Church, maybe one of the most missionary pastors in this city we ever had. And Oswald Smith said, or what Pastor Mars was saying is that the Holy Spirit only resides in the corridors of our heart as all the other doors to other areas of our lives are locked. Our heart is like a char clay full of ashes of our life. Sin, pride, self-gratification, resentment, hatred, 
And over the years, all those harden our hearts. Christ came to give us grounds of beauty for the ashes, the beauty of his own divine life for the ashes of our self-life. Too often we concentrate on the beauty and ask for the beauty. But unless we give him our ashes, there is no room for his beauty. There's a substitution plan in action. There's a plan where we give him our ashes and in return he can give us his beauty. But we hold on to our ashes and wonder, why doesn't my life change? Where is his beauty? Well, where are your ashes? But if we stay at this point, we will never experience the beauty God intended us to have. Christ came to give us beautiful ashes, the beauty of his own divine life for the ashes of our self-life. Like a caterpillar making his metamorphosis into a beautiful butterfly, so God has designed us to be transformed into his image. In Isaiah 6, 62, 3, it tells you, we will be a crown of beauty in the hand of our Lord, a king's crown in the hand of our God. So what is this great life the scripture is talking about? There is perhaps no clearer description of the divine life than in Paul's statement in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, but Christ that liveth in me. So what is the pathway that can lead us out of the darkness, out of our own self-life, into the full glory of the Christ life? What can open the door of our heart so the fullness of the Spirit can enter? I am crucified with Christ. The only way that can happen is the way of the cross. The way of being broken. The way of being emptied. And the way of being filled is the only pathway that can lead us out of the darkness of our own self-life, in the full glory of his life. It's only when the self-life is crucified that Christ can manifest himself in his own glory. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we read that the Holy, Holy Spirit transforms us into his image from one degree of glory to another. This is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. The Spirit of God seeks to conform us increasingly to the likeness of Christ. But the pathway from each step of glory to the next step of glory is a process, a process that must be via the cross. If we, through the Spirit, put to death our self-life, we will know the abundance of Christ's life. So what does it take to transform us? What is the way of the cross we have to go through? 
Well, there's four steps, and we're going to look at all four. First, we must realize the corruption of our self-life. Second, we must be broken. Third, we must be emptied. And fourth, we must be filled with the Spirit. So let's take a closer look at each. First, we must realize the corruption of our self-life. We can never enjoy deliverance from our self-life before we see something of our total corruption. Let us look at the elder son in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, for he illustrates perhaps better than anyone else in the, in the Bible the utter rottenness of our self-life. The younger son is usually the one we preach about. And usually he is considered to be worse than his brother. But if we carefully look at the elder brother, we will discover that in God's eyes, he was just as bad, if not worse. True, he did not commit the same sin as his younger brother, but his heart was crooked and self-centered. The human heart is basically the same in all of us. In Jeremiah 79, quote, the Bible describes the human heart as deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. This applies to every child of Adam. The refinement of civilization, lack of opportunity to commit sin, and a sheltered upbringing may perhaps have kept us from falling into greater sin than others have fallen in. But we cannot, on that count, consider ourselves better than others. For if we had the same circumstances and precious T-face, we would have undoubtedly ended up committing the same sins. As you remember from my testimony a few months ago, I said when I was 17, I easily could have become a murderer. And under the same circumstances, I'm certain I would be able to do it again if it was not for the grace of God. This may be a humiliating fact for us to acknowledge, but it's true. The sooner we recognize this fact, the sooner we will experience deliverance. Paul recognized that when he says in Romans 7, 8, For I know that in me, that is in the flesh, dwell is no good thing. For so will I present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. That was Paul's first step of freedom. In Romans 8, 2, Paul says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free, from the sin of law, uh, from the law of sin and death. Men look at the outward appearance, but God looks at our heart, and He sees all men in the same condition. The Bible teaches us the total depravity of men. Romans three ten twelve says, "It is written, there is none righteous, not one." There is none that understand it. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of their way. They are to 
together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Man is indeed totally depraved, and if God does not reach down and do something for us, there is no hope for us. Once we realize the corruption of our self-life and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us to overcome our self-filled life, we will be open to the next step in the process of the life of Christ. The second step is we must be broken. God must break us of our self-dependence so that he can bless us as we cling to him in our brokenness. Brokenness is the path for blessing. Before God can use a man greatly, he must break him, because we all have a built-in propensity to trust in ourselves. God must break us of our self-dependence. The best example of being broken by God can be found in the life of Jacob. Jacob was a man who learned experimentally what it meant to be broken. Jacob was a man of like passion as we are. He was called of God, no doubt, and eternally predestined to be a chosen vessel for the working of his destined purpose, divine purpose. However, Jacob had a corrupt and deceitful heart, just like we have. Jacob must have met with God many times in his life, but in the record given to us in Genesis, there are two meetings with God that stated, state, stands out. The first meeting was at Bethel, where he dreamed of a ladder reaching to heaven and where he says, this is the house of God, Genesis 28, 10 to 22. The second meeting was at Penel, where he wrestled with God and where he said, I have seen God face to face. Genesis 32, 24 to 32. Between those two incidents, there laid a period of 20 years. At panel, called dead, a final blow to Jacob. He had been disciplining Jacob and breaking him bit by bit over the previous 20 years. But now it has come to finish the work with one final blow. God had tried to show him how everything he had put in his hand has gone wrong. And when you read the, the, the story of Jacob, you will see that nothing worked. He was cheated as he cheated. He deceived as he was deceived. God tried to show him everything he has put his hands on to have gone wrong, despite his cleverness and his planning. But Jacob was stubborn. Finally, God struck Jacob's hip socket so that his tide was dislodged. The tide, by the way, is the strongest bone and the strongest part of our body. And that was the part that God had to strike. If God had not done that, it had might have been taken another 20 years for the sun to rise on Jacob. God knows the right time to shatter our self-confidence once and for all. 
and trust me, it will happen. God had to wait 20 years for Jacob was willing to take his mind away from his own things of the world and set it on God's things above. How many of us are Christians are hindering and delaying God's glorious purpose for our lives because of our narrowness of our vision or because we were taken up with lesser things than God's highest? And when God finally broke Jacob, then he was truly blessed. The records read, God blessed Jacob there. Genesis 32, 29. Jacob was blessed in the place where he was earnest and hungry for God. I will not leave you, he cried out, until you bless me. How God waited for 20 long years to hear those words from Jacob. How long has he, has he to wait to hear it from you and me? Dirt, we must be emptied. Hmm. Emptied, the word in Greek is kenosis, meaning self-emptying of one's own will and desires and become entirely receptive to God's desire, uh, divine will. The best example of emptying oneself can be found in Christ himself. In Philippians 2, 5 to 11, we read, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human kindness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on the cross. While we discover three clear things, he actually emptied himself off, or as we call it, divested himself off. The first was unilateral power, in coming to earth, he gave, us, gave up his sooner letter power and embraced, and embraced one ability. Because now for the first time, God in the person of Jesus Christ could be beaten, bruised, and killed. Jesus emptied himself of power and embraced one ability. He emptied himself of position. It says that Jesus humbled himself. He gave up his position above us to join us where we are at. He became human to reach us. So he gave up position and praised humility. And lastly, he gave up privilege and embraced obedience. Privilege is the right to choose and be in charge. Jesus gave that up and let his father direct him in all things and embraced absolute obedience. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, 
I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So what must we do to empty ourselves? Our self-life is so subtle and so deceitful that it enter the very sanctuary of God and try to serve him there. We have to watch and put self to death even when it seeks to serve God. God's work has to be a work of faith. That is, one that originates in man helpless dependency on our God. So it's not a question how effective our work is in the eyes of men or in our own. The important question whenever our work is a result of the Holy Spirit working in us, or are we doing it? God is not so interested in how much is done as in the question whose power has energized the little work. Was the work done by the power of money and intellectual ability or by the power of the spirit? That is the real question of spiritual work or work of faith. In other words, God is more interested in quality than in quantity. God's true work carries on today as of old, not by the human power or might, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Zechariah 4, 6, I read, not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. Someone has said that in a true work of God, there are three stages, difficult, impossible, and done. So little of evangelical Christian work today is truly a work of faith. We have so many electronic gadgets, other aids to help us in our service for the Lord, that many of us are, sometimes unconsciously, depending on them rather than on the Lord. It appears as though that one does not need to be filled with the Holy Spirit these days to serve the Lord. All one needs is a tape recorder, a few Christian Moody's, audiovisual aids, and some rich businessmen to provide the financial support. If added to this, one has a demonic personality and could go out and build his own megachurch. How far Christianity has drifted from the face of the apostles. What a tragedy that the techniques of the business world have been brought into the sanctuary of God. Let us never be fooled by the apparent success of these methods. Heaven does not rejoice over our labor because we have not delivered soul, we have delivered souls from self-centeredness, but merely entertained them and giving them a good time. It's not the size of the work that impresses God. The word looks for size and numbers. But God is looking for works of faith, even if they are the size of a mustard seed. God's way has not changed. Today, we need to be emptied our self-sufficiency and filled with the Spirit of God. And we are to produce good works that please the Lord. 
In Jeremiah 17, 5, it says, Cursed be the man who depends on man and who makes his self-sufficiency the arm of which he leans, for he shall be like a barren tree. However much such a man may give the appearance of fruitfulness to others, he will stand in the eternity like a barren tree, for his work originated in himself and in the dependence on human energies and human resources. On the other hand, I say what Jeremiah seven, uh, says in, seven, in uh, chapter 17, 7 and 8, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who has made the Lord his confidence. He is like a planted, is like a tree planted along the river bank, with his roots reaching deep into the water. His leaves stay green, and it goes right on producing all his luscious fruits. What are we producing? To change the illustration in 1 Corinthians 3, 10, 15, it says, We are, what are we built with? Wood, hay, straw, gold, silver, precious stone. One ounce of gold is worth more than a ton of straw after fire has done its work. Only genuine work of faith will abide in that day of testing. And the only way we can achieve that is when we fill with the Holy Spirit. Christ who gave us beautiful ashes, the beauty of his divine life for the ashes of our self-life. The beauty of the Christ life can only happen when we are broken and emptied and it's then brought to us through the fullness of the Spirit. I am crucified with Christ that is no longer I, but Christ that lives in me. For what is the purpose of the fullness of the Holy Spirit if not to reproduce the life of Christ in us? And so the measure of which our self-life is crucified and the Christ life manifested in us is the true measure of our of fullness of the Spirit. Let us look then at the life and the ministry of Paul to see some of the characteristics of a Christ-filled life. The Spirit-filled life is first of all a life of perfect contentment. In Philippians 4.11, Paul says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to, be a, to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whatever well-fed or hungry, whatever living in plenty or in need. And such contentment brings with us the fullness of joy and peace. Secondly, the spirit-filled life is a life of, grow of growth in holiness. A man's own life increases in holiness, so does his conscience of the absolute holiness in God. The two go together. In fact, the latter is one of the tests at whether a person really has the former. 
25 years after conversion, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles. Five years subsequently, he says in Ephesians 3, 8, I am less than the least of the saints. Still a year later, in 1 Timothy 1, 15, he says, I am the chief of sinners. Do you see the progression in holiness in those statements? The more Paul saw the holiness of God, the more he realized how little he was. Thirdly, the spiritual life is a life that is crucified. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. The way of the cross is the way of the fullness of the Spirit. The Spirit always leads us like he leads Jesus to the cross. The Spirit and the cross are inseparable. The cross is a symbol of weakness, shame, and death. But the fourthly, the spirit-life life is a life that is continuously seeking greater degree of fullness. I am pressing on, says Paul, nearly 30 years after his conversion, and he was drawing to the end of his life. He still did not consider having it attained. He is still seeking a greater degree of fullness of the Spirit in his own life, and therefore straining every spiritual muscle towards that goal. In closing, let us then look at the life and ministry of Paul to see some of the manifestation of a Christ life. First, Paul was a love slave. A spirit-felt service is the service of a love slave. In Acts 27, 23, Paul says, Last night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me. He was a love slave to his God. He retained no right to his own life. He had given everything to his God. The only proper basis for our consecration is recognizing the fact that we belong to God in first place. Paul served his Lord. He was not a hired servant who worked for wages, but one who served without any rights on his own. The service of a love slave has beautifully been summed up by someone in the following poem. I am but a slave. I have no freedom of my own. I cannot choose the smallest thing nor even on my own. I'm a slave. Kept to do the bidding for my master, he can call me night or day. Were I a servant, I could claim wages, freedom sometimes anyway. But I was bought, blood was the price my master paid for me, and I am now his slave, and evermore will be. Secondly, Paul has an evangelical passion. A spirit-filled service is a service that recognizes its debt to others. Paul said it in Romans 1.14, I'm a debtor to the Greek and the barbarian. God has given us a treasure to share with the world. 
the evidence of the Spirit's fullness and the beauty of Christ's life are seen not in thrilling emotional experiences, but the passion in our heart. I am thy slave, thy bond slave nevermore. Will I be free from the fiercest urges within to spread from race to race and shore to shore the joyful news of pardon for man's sin? Give me the soul of man, or else I die. Give me the love that counts not the cost. Give me the face all bears to defy. Give me the joy of bringing home the lost. Dirt Paul was aware of his human insufficiency. Spirit-felt service is a service that is conscious of human insufficiency. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12.10, when I am weak, then I am strong. The spirit-filled servant of God goes again and again to God like the man in the parable saying, I have nothing to give others. Please give me the living bread. The Lord's servant is perpetual conscious of his own insufficiency. For Paul, fulfilling his calling, Force Paul fulfilling his calling. A spirit-filled service is a service that fulfills God's specific calling. In Colossians 1, 30, uh, 23, 25, Paul says, I'm a minister. And in 1 Timothy 2, 7, he says, I'm ordained an apostle. Paul has been ordained by the nail-pierced hand of his Savior and not by any man. It was God who had called Paul to be an apostle. This calling, he says in Colossians 1.15, was given to him. It was God's gift, not something he had achieved or earned. He also says in the same verse that this calling was given him to serve others. It was a stewardship entrusted to him by God for the work of building up the church. As Pastor Miles two weeks ago Quoted Oswald Smith. Let me again close with a quote by Oswald Smith. And he says, The Bible distinguishes between having the Holy Spirit, which is true to all believers, and being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is true of very few. The fullness of the Spirit is not a question of our getting more of the Holy Spirit but rather a question, is the Holy Spirit getting more of us? God is looking for men and women who will never be content with mere experiences and blessings, but who take up the cross daily and follow him, and those manifest in their lives and in their service the reality of those words. It is no longer I, but Christ that liveth in me. This and this alone is the evidence of a spirit-filled life. Let's pray. Lord, as we rise to meet each new day, please let us be filled with your spirit. Whether we go, let us spread love, joy, peace, goodness, and faithfulness. Let us desire to become more and more like you and to worship you in all we do. Help us desire those things so much more than the sin that entices us all.
And thank you, God, for always going before us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just want uh, everyone to come and sit here.